Well, please do open your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 6. Mark, chapter 6 in your Bibles, please. Mark, chapter 6, we began last week, well, we began two weeks ago, but then last week we continued in Mark, chapter 6, by looking at the death of John the Baptist and how John the Baptist was a man who was not afraid of King Herod, but instead, King Herod was a man who was afraid of John the Baptist. And so let us be like John the Baptist and not fear the authorities, but recognize, like Jesus Christ said, they would have no authority except it had been given to them by God. And God will judge them for how they use their authority. And God will use their authority in our lives to accomplish his purposes. Whether we suffer at their hands or whether we are treated correctly, the truth is, is that God is working his purposes through all things. God causes all things to work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so I remind you of what Matthew 10:28 says where Jesus is recorded, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If you hear about FBI raids on pro-lifers and you're worried about them showing up with guns at your house at some point, remember, don't fear. And if you ever are raided by the FBI for whatever reason, look to set a good example of sharing the gospel with those who have come to arrest you and be a man of peace and joy and self-control like so many wonderful examples have been set for us in church history of those who were taught by the Lord Jesus Christ and who learned this lesson to not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Well, we're going to continue this morning in the gospel according to Mark. And we're going to be looking at two of the most familiar miracles of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. And we are in danger of not valuing these stories as we should because familiarity breeds contempt. And so my job this morning is to help you to appreciate the strength and the power that is in these accounts, these stories that you probably heard for the first time when you were just a small little lad or little girl, but... It's a lesson that we still need to learn today. Just because you know the story doesn't mean you've learned the lesson. Now, if you are there in Mark chapter 6, I want you to look at verses 31 to 34. Notice Mark 6, verses 31 to 34. The apostles have returned to Jesus, it says in verse 30. They're relating to him everything that they had done and taught while they'd been sent out on their mission back in verses 7 through 13. And after they are all gathered and they've all delivered their report to Jesus, he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And then I want you to come down to verses 54 to 56. After the miracles that we're going to be talking about here, the the two most familiar miracles of Jesus, then they cross over again the sea and come to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and they ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it 
were made well. So what we see here in these two little sections that bracket the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus Christ walking on water is that there's no rest for the Savior. That the disciples had just gotten back from a mission. They needed some time to rest, but there is no time because the crowds see them even as they're trying to get away on their vacation. They see where they're going. They get there ahead of them and they're greeted by the crowd. And Jesus... He has no time to rest. The disciples have no time to rest. And Mark is trying to get across to us here the busyness of Jesus Christ as he's come to the climax of his Galilean ministry. Mark records three basic tours of Jesus Christ through the towns and the villages and small cities of Galilee. And here we're coming towards the end. This is the summary we just read about wherever he went, whatever town, whatever village, even out in the countryside, the crowds are coming to him and he is constantly busy working miracles of healing. This is the end. That he, After this, he's going to start heading up towards Jerusalem where he is going to lay down his life as a sacrifice for many. But before we get to that point, there are two more miracles that Mark wants to highlight that unveil the glory of Jesus Christ in an even greater way. Up to this point, we've seen Jesus Christ do some really remarkable miracles, such as casting out thousands of demons from the man who was called Legion, or even raising the dead when the little girl had passed away, and then he quietly went in and made sure that he told them not to tell anyone about this amazing miracle that he had done. Well, He had also given the ability to cast out demons and to heal to his disciples. And so now his disciples have come back with the authority that they had from Jesus. And so Jesus is now going to show them even more power, even more authority. Things that are going to continue to blow their mind. Just when they thought they had seen everything, they have not. And there is more power, more authority that Jesus Christ is going to show them that they're going to realize that he's on a different level. Yes, he has given them the ability to do amazing miracles, but the miracles that he's about to do, these are unique to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they really make a strong impression upon the disciples. And that's why this first miracle that we have in verses 30 through 44, where Jesus feeds the 5,000, this is one of two miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels. There's only two miracles that are in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This one and the resurrection. And so that shows you how important this miracle is in the story of Jesus and why we teach it to children at such a young age and why we need to hear it again today. So let's read it. Follow along in your Bibles. I'm going to read Mark chapter 6. We already read verses 30 to 33. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 34. So they all got there ahead of him on foot. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. 
And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. All right, there's a, a lot here to talk about. This is an amazing, very instructing, full of a lot of instruction story about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when it says that they're going to a desolate place, that's back in verse 31, it says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place. Don't get the idea that that's meaning that he's going out to some kind of desert. There is no desert around the Sea of Galilee. It's a very lush area. And we find out a little bit later that the people are going to be sitting down on the green grass. So it's not like he's going out to the desert, but a desolate place just means an uninhabited area. So he's going out from the villages and the towns where so many people are coming and going that they don't even have time to eat. And we're going to try to get away out in the wilderness just for a little bit of time to rest. And Jesus' idea of rest is to spend time in prayer alone with the Father. And so that's what they're planning on doing, although the crowds prevent that from happening. Now, when Jesus gets off the boat, he disembarks, and he sees this great crowd. Now, there might not have been 5,000 right there immediately. More people probably came throughout the day as he was teaching. But even when he got off the boat, there was already a, a large crowd there. And notice what it says in verse 34. He had compassion on them. It is the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ that causes him to continue to work for the good of the lost sheep of the house of Israel, even when he is exhausted. And he was a man, and he got exhausted. Even when his disciples were exhausted, he's got to make the decision. Do I take care of my disciples and let them have a time of rest, or do we minister to this great crowd that is here? And because of his compassion, he ministers to the great crowd. This is a good shepherd. Where's Herod, the king of this area? Is he with the people? Does he have compassion for the people? Is he there meeting their needs, talking with them face to face? No, he is not. Does he care about them? Only insofar as he can make himself great through them. Through taxes, through boasting about all the people that he rules over. This is the same kind of shepherd that we read about in our scripture reading in Ezekiel chapter 34. Woe to the shepherds, says the prophet, who are feeding themselves and not my people. And Jesus Christ walks into that same situation and he's got a whole countryside full of people who have no shepherd. Oh yes, they have a king, but he is no shepherd. And Jesus Christ has compassion because he is the good shepherd and he's willing to work himself past the point of exhaustion to meet the needs of those that he cares for. What a great example he sets for his disciples. What a great example he sets for us. The power of God to carry us through our exhaustion. He had compassion on them. Matthew tells us that as he looked on the crowds, he had compassion because they were harassed and helpless. You look around at the sheep, the lost sheep in the house of the United States and, and have compassion on them. They are harassed. They are helpless. They have no true leadership. Their leaders lie to them. Their leaders abuse them. Their leaders only care about them for what they can get from them. Do you have compassion on the crowds? The word for compassion is a picturesque word. 
I like this word in particular because it sounds like what it means, splachna. And splachna are your guts. Guts kind of sounds like what it means too. And so this is the verb form for guts. He felt for them in his guts. That's the kind of compassion that he had for these sheep without a shepherd. Now, I'd like to point out to you where we are on the map. So the disciples have their headquarters here in Capernaum. And he sends them out to all the towns and villages. Some probably went up to Chorazin. Some went over to Bethsaida. Some might have traveled over here in the area of Gennesaret. And all around, he sent his disciples. And they all returned to him at Capernaum. And then it says that they sailed towards Bethsaida in order to go out to the countryside here where they can be alone. But the crowds follow them. They get there before them. They see him coming. And so you've got this huge group of people here in the green grass there outside of Bethsaida, and that's where we are located. Now, when we see Jesus Christ caring for the people of Israel, his countrymen, as those who are sheep without a shepherd, it reminds the student of Scripture, who knows his Old Testament well, of Numbers chapter 27, verses 16 and 17. What happens in Numbers 27 is that Moses recognizes he's not going to be there forever. And he recognizes that the people of Israel are going to need a leader when he's gone. And so he prays. And Moses asked the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, to appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Here we have a description of Moses, of the type of leader that God is looking for, It's someone who goes out with the people. It's someone who goes in with the people. It's someone who is a shepherd with the sheep. That's why God uses this shepherd language. The owner of the sheep might be back in his house, but the shepherd is the one that is there with the sheep, and they know his face, and they recognize his voice. That's the way a leader is. And so, the people of Israel needed a shepherd. Moses prayed for that. And who did God appoint? to be the answer to this prayer that the people of Israel might not be as sheep that has no shepherd, Joshua. You know what the name Joshua translates to in the Greek? Jesus. Jesus was named after Joshua. He is the one whom God has appointed to lead the people out, to bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep that have no shepherd. As we read in Ezekiel chapter 34, It was a tragic situation in those days that there was no good shepherd. Those who were shepherds were just using the flock for their own purposes. And so they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. And the wild beasts were the foreign nations who came in and destroyed the people of Israel. And Ezekiel lived to see the destruction of Jerusalem and he was carried off into exile and the sheep were scattered throughout the ancient world because they had no good leadership. The kings of Israel, evil. The kings of Judah, wicked. The rulers, the nobles, all bad. And the sheep were scattered. And so God promised in Ezekiel chapter 34, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And what did we just read? The coming of the Messiah, the coming of Joshua, the one who is going to make sure that the people are shepherded, who's going to go in and out among them, as you see, and who's going to feed them. Now you've got thousands of people out in a desolate place. And the good shepherd is going to have them sit down on the green grass, and he's going to feed them. Also, 
I was thinking about Moses when he complained to the Lord in Numbers chapter 11. When the people had the manna, God had given them manna from heaven to eat and had supernaturally supplied for them in the wilderness, a place of desolation. And yet the people were complaining about the food that God had given to them. They'd grown tired of the manna and they longed for meat to eat. And Moses was having a pity party. Woe is me. Where am I going to get meat to give to all this people? Two million Jews are coming to me for meat in the wilderness. They weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. And God does supply meat, a miracle of feeding his people in the wilderness He miraculously provides and he judges in righteousness as the people deserved judgment for complaining about the food that God had so graciously given to them and being greedy for meat to eat. Now, notice back in Mark chapter 6 that the disciples, they come to the Lord Jesus Christ and they take it upon themselves to tell Jesus what he doesn't seem to know and to tell Jesus what they think he should do. They come and they say, well, Lord, you see, you know, it's getting late and we've got all these thousands of people here with nothing to eat, so here's what you need to do, Lord. You need to send them away and they can go buy something. Now, you appreciate the disciples on one level because we would be the same way, right? Very practically minded, but they forgot who they're talking to. Does Jesus need to be reminded that the hour is late and there's no place to buy food? Does Jesus need people around him to tell him what he's supposed to do? No, the disciples have forgotten their place again. Jesus is Lord of all. And they're starting to treat him like he's just a rabbi. He's not just a rabbi. And he has to remind them of this. And so he's intended this from the beginning. He knows what he's going to do. And he's testing his disciples to find out, are they going to look to me or are they going to tell me what to do? And of course, they don't look to Jesus to solve the problem. Instead, they tell him how he should solve the problem. And Jesus doesn't take their advice, but in verse 37, he answered them and said, you give them something to eat. That's a terrible idea, Lord. We don't have food to give to them. We don't have money to buy food to give to them, even if there was a store where we could buy the food and give to them. What do you mean we should give them something to eat? Once again, they are disrespectful to the Lord in their response. I want you to see that. They said, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Now, their calculations are right on. 200 denarii of bread is is a pretty good estimate of what it would cost to feed this crowd of 5,000 men. And now when it says in verse 44 that there were 5,000 men, the word there for man is very specific. It's the word for male. It's not the word for person. And so there were 5,000 male persons, and Matthew tells us that's besides the women and children. Now, some people, therefore, would estimate this crowd at 15,000 or more, thinking that there's got to be at least as many women and children as men. I don't think that's the case. I think for reasons that I'm not going to go into right now, this was mostly a male crowd. There were some women and children. I'm going to estimate there were maybe seven to 8,000 people total. But it was mostly men. And to feed seven or 8,000 people, that is going to cost a pretty penny. 200 denarii is about $20,000 
if you calculate the denarii in accordance with today's minimum wage, the denarii was what a common laborer would get for a day's work. And so if you calculate a common laborer in our day and what they get for a day and how long it would take to get 200 of those, you're looking at about $20,000, and that's no small amount to put into one meal to serve people. And it's like, they're not my people. It's not my job to feed all these people. Why do I have to spend $20,000 to feed them? Jesus, he never commands us to do anything that he's not going to give us the power to do. Jesus never commands us to do anything that he's not going to give us the power to do. There will be times when the word of the Lord appears to you to be ridiculous, impossible, not rational. And if you leave God out of it, it is impossible. That's our problem. We leave God out of our calculations. Yeah, they could calculate the size of the crowd and the amount of money it would cost to buy food for them, but when you have Jesus with you, that changes the equation. We must always keep that in mind. You come to a pastor for biblical counseling, and the pastor says, the Bible says do this, and you say, well, pastor, that doesn't seem very reasonable. That doesn't seem very practical. Well, it's not my saying, it's what the Bible says. Well, I don't think it's going to work. Well, that's your problem. That's not my problem. If you don't think the Word of God is going to work, guess what? It's not going to work for you. But if you do think the Word of God is going to work, you might see something amazing. If you just do what the Bible tells you to do, even if it seems ridiculous, even if it seems overly simplified, it's a very complex problem. I can't just do this and expect it to work. Why don't you try it? Maybe you'll find that God is real. Maybe you'll find that God is powerful. Maybe you'll find that God is all-powerful. Five loaves and two fish is what they report back with. Jesus tells them, how many loaves do you have? Go and check it out. So they go and see what they have. They come back, there's five loaves, there's two fish... That's not enough to feed 5,000 men besides the women and the children. This is enough to feed one person. This is one person's lunch. When it says five loaves, I don't want you to think of like big loaves of French bread. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about little biscuits. There's five biscuits and two fish. And the fish were used as relish for the bread so that you weren't just eating bread. This is a lunch. That's all they've got. John tells us that it was a boy's lunch. To take a boy's lunch and to feed seven or eight thousand people, that means that Jesus multiplies this meal by ten to fifteen thousand. In verse 39, he tells them to sit down on the green grass. It reminds me of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You know what I shall not want means? It means I have everything I need. Do you know that? Do you know that the Lord is your shepherd? Do you know that you have everything you need? The disciples, they looked at their situation like, no, we don't have everything we need. We've got five loaves and two fish, and there's thousands of people here. We're pretty short on what we need. Yeah, but the Lord is there. The Lord is there. 
If God is with you, that makes all the difference. If God is with you. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'm never going to want. I'm always going to have what I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Disciples, have the people sit down in the green pastures. I'm about to feed them. Actually, you're about to feed them. because I'm going to give to you, and you're going to give it to the people. What they scoffed at, what they thought was ridiculous, is exactly what they're going to do. They are going to feed these people. Because Jesus is going to give them what they need to feed the people. In verse 41, Jesus looks up to heaven and said a blessing. We find Jesus often looking up to heaven when he prays, especially when he's out of doors. He lifted up his eyes and praised God when he was raising Lazarus in John chapter 11, verse 41. He looked up to heaven when he was healing the deaf in Mark chapter 7, verse 34. And the customary blessing that's recorded in the ancient Jewish writings that most Jewish men would say when they were blessing the table and blessing the bread is, Blessed art thou, our Lord and our God, O King of the world, who brings forth bread from the world. It's probably something like that. Short, to the point, you're not so much blessing the bread as you're blessing God who has given the bread, is what our insight into the Judaism of this time would reveal. Elisha also did a similar miracle that most of us have forgotten about. Now, we remember the widow's oil and and we remember how God multiplied for that particular case. But there's another story that most of us forget about. In 2 Kings chapter 4, let's go back and look at that. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 to 44. At the beginning of chapter 4, you've got the widow's oil. And God raises the Shunammite son there in the middle of the chapter. But you come to the end of the chapter, and you've got just this little story that's thrown in there. Very often gets overlooked because we've got so many stories to tell, and this one doesn't stand out as much as Naaman being healed of leprosy or raising the Shunammite son from the dead. But here, notice what it says. 2 Kings 4, verse 42. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sacks. He's got a sack full of food. It's a good amount of food. And Elijah said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them. And they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. When God tells you to do something that doesn't seem practical, do it. Just do it. Respect God. When you question God's commands and orders, you're disrespecting him. Don't do that. The disciples did it to Jesus. Here the servant did it to Elisha. God can do what he says he's going to do. And whatever he tells you to do, he will give you the strength and power to do it. Now let's go on to the next miracle then in Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. And this is where we have Jesus walking on the water. And this is not recorded in all the Gospels. Only the feeding of the 5,000 is recorded in all four Gospels. But you do see how these are connected. And I'll read it for us. It says there in verse 45, 
Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But he immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. We'll talk about that as we get towards the end here, but let's take a look at the miracle first. So they head towards Bethsaida, but the winds come up, and they are straining at the oars. They're agonizing, the text says, at the oars because the wind is against them, and they're not getting to where they're wanting to go, but instead they might even be getting blown off course a ways. And Jesus, he takes some time to go up on the mountain to pray. He dismisses the crowd. You can read more about that in John's account of the feeding of the 5,000. But he dismisses the crowd, and what he does is he goes up on the mountain to pray by himself. Remember the beginning of the gospel, back in Mark chapter 1, when after his first miracle, and all the people were crowding around, and they wanted more miracles, and the disciples were looking for Jesus because everyone was looking for him, but he rose very early in the morning, while it was still dark, and Jesus departed out of the village, Capernaum, few thousand people living there and he went out to a desolate place again an uninhabited area and there he prayed so when all the people see the miracles and they want more jesus spends time alone with god he sets a good example for us watch and pray the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak sweet hour of prayer that jesus christ enjoyed on these occasions he was probably praying for several hours just alone with his father. How many times is the Christian delivered from temptation by the sweet hour of prayer? Jesus Christ delivered from temptation by the sweet hour of prayer. It was the strength that he got from his time in prayer that gave him the power in his humanness to overcome the devil. He'll pray again in the Garden of Gethsemane before he dies for our sins. And he emerges from the garden victorious because of his prayers, whereas the disciples emerge and fail miserably because they were sleeping when they should have been praying. Spiritual strength is more important than physical strength. It's better to be physically exhausted than spiritually empty. Prayer trumps our need for sleep. Now, I'm not saying don't get enough sleep. You should be getting enough sleep. But there will be times where you might have to make a choice between sleep and prayer. And if you're wise like Jesus, you'll choose prayer instead of sleep. Watch and pray. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, is what he told his disciples in the garden. Now, about the fourth watch of the night, it says in verse 48, he comes walking on the water to the disciples. Now, the fourth watch is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. 
So you can see that the disciples have gotten themselves in quite a pickle, that they're still out on the lake deep into the night, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. wonder how long they were out there, uh, struggling against the wind, taking turns on the oars, getting exhausted. And as Jesus is walking on the water, it tells us that he was going to pass by them. You see that there in verse 48? Walking on the sea, he meant to pass by them. And that has caused commentators a lot of head-scratching. Why was Jesus intending to walk by them? And there's a lot of answers to that question. You could say that it has to do with the theophanies in the Old Testament when the glory of God would pass by in front of people. It could have a reference to a passage in Job where it talks about God walking on the waters and if he passes by, I won't recognize him. That Maybe that was part of the prefiguring that is in the heart of God as he orchestrates these events. You could say that maybe pass by is not the best translation and that really you should translate it as he was just planning on walking to where they were to catch up to them, as some commentators do. But I think the best answer to this question as to why Jesus meant to pass by them is in a similar situation in Luke chapter 24, verse 28. And in Luke 24, 28, we've got a post-resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ as his disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus, you remember how the story goes, that Jesus comes along and starts walking with them. But they don't recognize him because, one, they're not expecting Jesus because they thought he died and was crucified. And two, because Jesus is hiding himself in some way from recognizing them. And so, as they're walking along and talking, it says there in Luke 24:28 that they drew near to the village to which they were going, and Jesus acted as if he were going further. And so here, he is testing them to see whether or not they are going to ask him to stay with them, or if they might recognize him in some way. So he's pretending to go by them as kind of a test for them. And I think that's what we have going on here also. He's walking, the disciples don't know who he is, and he's planning on going by, and, and he's kind of wanting to see, do they recognize me? And of course they do not. They fail this test. They should have recognized him on the road to Emmaus, because they should have believed what he said, that he was going to rise from the dead. And when they were talking with him, they should have realized this is him. This is the Lord. But they were slow of faith. They didn't recognize him. They were hardened in their heart. And so that's what we have going on here as well. They didn't recognize him. What's more likely in the disciples' situation? Let's just be rational about this. You've been with the Lord Jesus Christ for a couple of years now. You've seen him raise the dead. You've seen him heal lepers. You've seen him feed 5,000 people from a few loaves and a few small fish. And he tells you to go across the water, which you've seen him calm by his word earlier in the book, as it's written. What's more likely? That you see a ghost out on the waters at four in the morning, or that Jesus Christ is walking on the water? Where should their minds have gone? If they really understood who Jesus was, if they really understood their situation, are we seeing a ghost or are we seeing the power of the Lord? They should have recognized that it was the Lord, but they didn't. They're freaking out in the boat. It's a phantasm. That's a, the word in Greek here. It's the word phantasma. It's a ghost. And they're crying like girls. Sorry, girls. And so Jesus, in his compassion, he decides to let them know who he is. He was going to walk by, but then when they freaked out and didn't recognize him, he's like, well, I better help him out. 
And so he tells them, stop freaking out. Take heart. It's I. Don't be afraid. How many times does God do this in the Bible? How many times does God allow people to get into a situation where we lose our mind and then he says, stop it. Take heart. Be encouraged. I'm here with you. You've got nothing to be afraid of. You know, when my little daughter says, I'm afraid of the bad guy, I say, don't be afraid. I'm here. I'll die before I let anything happen to you. That's what God says to us. You're my little children. You're my little sheep. Don't be afraid. I have you in my hand. Revelation chapter 1. When John saw the resurrected Christ, he says, I fell at his feet though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last. Why should you not fear? Because he is the first and the last and he is your friend. That should banish all fears if you believe it. God says in the prophet Isaiah, I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. Now he's speaking to his people Israel, but by application this is true of the church and it's true of you. God holds your hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. God says to your heart, don't be afraid. I'm going to help you. And in Isaiah chapter 43, these words which are so appropriate to this text. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You're mine. Don't be afraid. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. You see, hardened hearts are not just a problem for the disciples. They're a problem for you. Right? They're a problem for me. Why am I afraid? Do I not believe? Do I not understand? Have I not seen? Have I not heard? Why am I so slow to faith and so quick to fear? It's foolishness. I want to read for you a short passage about faith that was written around 170 A.D., by a man named Theophilus. Not the Theophilus of the Bible. This is a hundred years after him. But Theophilus of Antioch wrote this concerning faith. Do you not know that faith is the leading principle in all matters? For what farmer can reap unless he first trusts his seed to the earth? Or who can cross the sea unless he first entrusts himself to the boat and the pilot? And what sick person can be healed? unless he first trusts himself to the care of the physician. And what art or knowledge can anyone learn, unless he first apply and entrust himself to the teacher? If then the farmer trusts the earth, and the sailor the boat, and the sick the physician, will you not place confidence in God, even when you hold so many pledges at his hand? For first he created you out of nothing, and brought you into existence, 
For if your father was not, nor your mother, much more were you yourself at one time not in being. And he formed you out of a small and moist substance, even out of the least drop, which at one time had itself no being. And God introduced you into this life. If God created you, if God made you, is he not the most trustworthy of all? If you can trust yourself to a boat to cross the lake, if you can trust yourself to an airplane to cross the United States and the pilot, if you can trust yourself to your car and the drivers who are coming across the street at 60 miles an hour, can you not trust God with your life? Faith is required. And that's what the disciples lacked. And that's why their hearts were hardened. What is the spiritual lesson that they had missed in the loaves? Notice verse 52. They did not understand about the loaves. What didn't they understand about the loaves? They saw it. They know exactly what happened. But they missed the point. They would have been able to tell you, Jesus just fed 5,000 men and a bunch of women and children from one lunch. That is amazing power. But as soon as their faith in the power of God was tested, they forgot it. You can sit here and listen to this sermon and say, Oh, amen, yes, preacher, I agree. And tomorrow you're going to go out and forget it and act like none of this matters. Beware that your heart is hard and that you're not getting it. Why do we live like orphans? Why do we act as if God has no real bearing on our life? Why do we worry and trouble ourselves and stay up late thinking, how am I going to fix this? Don't you have a Heavenly Father? Are you alone in the world? Don't live that way. Don't think that way. The Lord is my shepherd, so I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters. I want to close with a passage in 2 Peter. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. I think it's right to read 2 Peter and 1 Peter when you're going through the gospel according to Mark, because, as you recall, Mark was writing the memoirs of the Apostle Peter. Peter saying, well, this is what we did and this is how it went and we didn't understand and we were hard-hearted. But he does understand now. When he's writing Second Peter, he's got the lesson. He's figured it out. What was I supposed to learn when Jesus Christ fed the 5,000 from the loaves? What was I supposed to understand? That's what he's telling us here in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Second Peter 1, 3. His divine power the power of Jesus Christ, the power of God at work through the Holy Spirit, His divine power has granted to us, not just the apostles, but all of His flock, all of us Christians, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Is there anything that you need for life and godliness that you lack? Is there anything that you lack in order to be like God in your character and to have real life in your heart?
Objectively, the answer is no. There is nothing you lack. Subjectively, you might be lacking. And why are you lacking? Because you don't believe. You don't trust him. You're living as if you were an orphan instead of one of his sheep. His divine power has granted to us, believe it, all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? How does this come to us? It's through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. The life of God in the soul of man. That's what it is. The life of God is everything you need for life and godliness. And it comes to you through the knowledge, the personal knowledge, the relational knowledge, that you know God. And you know Jesus Christ. And you know in a way that makes a practical difference in your outlook, your mindset, your planning, your words and your actions. You know God. That's how this all comes to you. The essence of true religion isn't singing songs and having religious feelings. The essence of true religion is not having correct doctrine and being able to give a great explanation of the Trinity. The essence of true religion is not any of these things. The essence of true religion is knowing God personally. That is the heart of it. And that changes everything. And that's what the disciples learned. That's what Peter grasped after the resurrection. When the Holy Spirit came into his heart, opened his eyes, opened his ears, and he had that personal fellowship with Jesus Christ in a more powerful way than when Jesus Christ was standing next to him, then he understood the life of God in the soul of man because that's the gift of the Holy Spirit. 